starts like this. Children, you're dismissed. Actually, it doesn't start that way, but. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. We don't know their names, except for one. We know Cleopas. And, and most people think that the two that are walking down this road called Emmaus are a husband and a wife. So we'll just say Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas. We don't really know Mrs. Cleopas's name. But here they are. They're walking down this road, and they're leaving behind them a city that's a buzz with the events of the weekend. It's the night of the first Easter. Behind them are the sham trials. Behind them is a bloody crucifixion. And now they're walking down this road, this road that they have walked down so many times, this seven-mile road to get home. And they're hearing rumors. Rumors about a missing body. And the text says that they were walking down this road. And they weren't talking about the normal things like, how are the kids doing? Or, you know, what are, you, what are we having for dinner tonight? Or, or how are we going to make ends meet? Or what did you think about the latest events? Except, they were talking about those events. And it says that they were discussing the weekend. A conversation that was dominated by uncomfortable realities, that was dominated by an unknown future, that was dominated by unthinkable losses, just completely unfathomable. And they had lost their spirit. You ever been there? Where you just lose your spirit. And as Henry Nouwen said, beyond all these things, there is the loss of faith. You see, everything that they dreamed seemed to be true. I mean, Messiah had come. This was the day. We were ready. But then their expectations were crucified. Hope was crucified. Faith was crucified. Their dream was crucified. And there they stood. There they walked. The way John Eldridge puts it, he says that violence of the world damages the soul. And he goes on and says, life is a savage assault striking at random, poisoning our heart's assurance that God is good, or at least good toward us. What a statement that is. Poisoning our heart's assurance that God is good. Sometimes life poisons our heart's assurance that God is good. We should not be surprised. And here's why. 
Because from the beginning of mankind, there's been an enemy. And Satan's chief aim is to do just that. That's how he started. That's how he started with Eve, trying to convince her of the lie that God could not be trusted to provide for her, that God could not be trusted to be good. That's the lie of Eden. And ever since then, ever since that time, the enemy of our souls, the very real enemy of our souls, has leveraged every heartache, every disappointment, every disease, every act of violence to plant the seed of doubt about God's goodness. We hear it in the questions we ask ourselves and our friends ask us and our coworkers and our neighbors. And I'm sure that when they're walking down that road, they were feeling that. When you read about the appearances of Jesus post-resurrection, there's about pretty much so 13 of them. But I think this one, this one of these two who are walking down the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, I think this one is the most pedestrian. It's, it's the most common. It feels like it's something I would do. But here they are. They're downcast and they're discouraged. And the Lord walks with them. While their doubts and their fears and their second guesses reign, but it's there, it's in that place that Jesus meets them and offers them life. The bread of life. For us as well. But back to our story. This stranger who's walking on the road joins them in mid-discussion. They couldn't see him. He was a stranger to them, but history allows us to know that this was no stranger at all. But for a moment, put yourself in their shoes. Just put yourself there. Walk down that road. No explanation is given as to why they can't recognize him. All kinds of speculation Was it the tears in their eyes or the anger in their souls where they just so twisted up over what has happened? Were were their souls so downcast that their faces were downcast, as the text says, and they were just looking at their dragging feet and they couldn't pay mind to this one who's with them? Or did it happen that cynicism And doubt created a jaded view of this whole Messiah thing. That they were just so jaded by it all (laughs) that they walked down the road. We really don't know, but this is what we know. They lost their ability to even consider an alternative story. They lost their ability to even think that there was an alternative narrative for their life. And we all are tempted to get to the place where we don't think another possible narrative for our lives is available. And doubt meets them as they walk this road called doubt. 
They didn't think there was an alternative to their story. But then this stranger, how dare he, asks an awkward question. Read the text. Look how awkward this is. Cleopas is irritated. He doesn't even look up. Even in verse 17, he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Stopped them dead in their tracks. They stood still. Their faces downcast. They're not even looking up. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, and he probably asked them like this. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love Jesus' response. What things? <laughs> what things? He's just drawing it out of them. Just like he draws on us. What things, Jeff? What things are you downcast about? What things are defeating you? What things are preventing those chains from falling off that we just sang about? What things? And he just invites us. What things? And then it happened, when you read the text, you realize that this damn burst that was inside of them and outpoured this pain, and they recounted how Jesus of Nazareth was abused and executed, and now they're, they don't know what to do. Their heads are spinning because there's unsettling stories about an empty tomb. This is so real. But making sure that this stranger understood how their world was completely turned upside down and their expectations were completely evaporated they say this to him we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel we had hoped he was the one who was going to take care of it all we had hoped we had hoped that he was the one who was going to bring us our hope and bring us peace and redeem everything and make everything right in a world that seems so incredibly wrong. We had hoped, but, you know, this whole Messiah thing, I don't know. One form of doubt is our own disappointment in God not being God as we want God to be. Let me say that again. One form of doubt is our own disappointment in God not being God as we want God to be. And we can attach all kinds of different reasons for that or ways we expect God to be God. I wonder about them. Were their hopes and dreams built around their hopes and dreams and not God's hopes and dreams? I wonder if that's what prevented them from actually recognizing him. That actually <laughs> right alongside them was the actual one they had hoped for. What things? Arnold Rodheiser said this about them. He said, why can they not recognize him? 
because they're too focused on the former reality. And then he says this, by clinging to what once was, we fail to see God in the present reality. Just sit with that. By clinging to what once was, we fail to see God in the present reality. By holding on, by holding on to, you know, the good old years, the good old days, which often were not really as good as we think they were. We're holding on the way things ought to be. By holding on to this dream that we have that God would do this. But even there, you see, Jesus was there. Jesus is there for us in that wrestling. I just confess that there's many things that I'm clinging to at times. Things I hoped would be and are not. Well, the story continues, and when you read it, you think like Jesus is being rude. Jesus is being harsh. I love the way the message paraphrase puts it. It says Jesus looks at him and says, so thick-headed, slow, so, so slow-hearted. I think he was talking about me when I, when I read that. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted. You see, he's not, he's not being unkind. What he's trying to do, he's trying to crack this shield, this shell, this wall that they've erected that doesn't allow them to see an alternative. He's trying to crack that rock of fear. Because he wants them to see a larger story, because he wants them to believe. He, he wants them to believe. And, and the word believe is actually a combination of two words. One of them is that we are to faithfully trust. The other word is, believe it or not, to faithfully go about doing business. So if you combine those things, the word believe actually has the idea of a determined trust in the midst of the business of life. And that's what Jesus wants for them. And Voskamp put it this way, resurrection happens wherever there is a long trusting in God's direction. A long trusting in God's direction. And that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted resurrection for them because of the resurrection of him. So he uses what is lodged in their memory. It's amazing how Jesus uses many things in our lives that we already have possession of. And he does that for them. He uses their scripture. I love this. It says, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
You see, they needed some explanation. They, they likely thought Messiah would seize his day with political power. That was the going story. That was the narrative everyone was living in. But this stranger helps them see that Messiah would come and live among them. He would know suffering and he would defeat death. That God was at work in the horror of that Friday made good in the news of an empty tomb. Dan Boone asked this question. Could it be that God is most at work when everything seems to be falling apart? I hate that question. I hate it. It forces me to kind of look at the things in my life, in my world, that are not what I want them to be. And to try to see the fingerprints of God. Which can be very hard. He goes on. Can you see God at work in those places? And then he answers this question. Hard, isn't it? And I write, very In fact, it is so hard that we must confess that in our own strength and power, we can't. They couldn't. They could not see God working, and we can't either on our own. And that's what's best about where our story goes. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now now just pause a minute. Just a little bit ago, they were incredulous. Just a little bit ago, they were irritated. Now they can't get enough of him. And as a mark of their eastern hospitality, they they implore him to stay. They, They welcome him to a meal. But get this, it was as they welcomed him, it was as they made room for him, for him. When they made room for him, that's when it happened. When they made space for God, when they made space for Jesus in their lives. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's a great prayer for a daily time with God's word, isn't it? Lord, may my heart burn with your scripture truth. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And you know what you realize? No longer are their faces downcast. When you enter my office, above the door is a carving from a friend. And it's the Latin phrase, susum corda. It's part of the ancient liturgy. It's translated in the liturgy, Lift up your hearts. Let them be lifted up to the Lord. It goes on and says, it is right and good to give him thanks and praise. But literally the term susum corda means hearts up. Hearts up. And, And that's what happens for these. Their hearts are now up 
no longer downcast, but now they're looking up. In making room for Jesus, they realize he's alive. And they realize that he had been with them all along. What a good lesson for us on the road called doubt. Again, Ann Voskamp captures this. She says, resurrection reorients. Resurrection reorients the hurt of this world in a different direction. It changes our trajectory. It turns us from holding on to those things that we think really are going to make a difference. Those things in our own strength, those resources, the stuff of this world that we think, if we just do this or if we just have that, And it turns us towards extending our own open hands to commit all things into God's hands. Reorients the way we look at the world. Resurrection reorients our lives, changes the trajectory. But here's a secret. They did not suddenly have some great, brilliant idea of their own. No, The living God opened their eyes to see he was there all along. But that was the response. That was God's response to them welcoming him. That was God's response to them opening up their hearts and homes to him. It's an endearing account. Every time I read it, I... I just find myself like walking down that road. I could see them kicking the stones and heads down. And... But this is what stands out to me. There was nothing more familiar to them than this road. They had probably walked this road back and forth seven miles, hundreds of times. Jesus met them in the familiar and in the tragic, all of that meshed together. And life is like that. It all gets meshed together. He met them in their now. What is your now? What is your now? I think we're often waiting for God to somehow show up in a fantastic way. I think we think, if only I I will get this right, if only I can get my life straightened out, then God's going to show up and he's going to bless me, he's going to take care of everything. Or we think that, you know, if God would give us like a tomb-emptying experience, maybe a miraculous healing, you know, if God would just change the circumstances... And I think we're somehow waiting for God to show up in some overwhelming way. And when he doesn't, we default to doubting he will ever show up. And we give in to fear and anxiety. And we let bitter cynicism and steely jadedness make room in our hearts. And if you don't do that, I know I do. But what we learn here is that Jesus shows up in the present tense. I remember reading someone saying years ago, 
Jesus did not say, I was. He did not say, I will be. He said, I am. He is the God of the present tense. He shows up where we are, but sometimes that can be so difficult because we want this overwhelming God. But as Rollheiser says, God always looks underwhelming in our world. He looks underwhelming. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that he's going to show up for those who are poor and imprisoned and broken, and he says, you know, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. That's where God shows up, not in the powerful and the political and the wealthy, not saying any of those things are wrong. But where does God show up? According to the Scripture, God always looks underwhelming in our world. I think what these travelers wanted and what we want is the overwhelming God who moves with all his might and power. But what do we get? We get a God who takes on human flesh like a helpless baby. We get the God who lives in poverty as an itinerant rabbi. We get the God who shuns riches and fame and material things. And brings grace to the poor and unknown. This is a tough God to deal with. We get the God who is executed as a common criminal in the most shameful and inhumane way and whose cause, by all appearances, is a failure. We get the God of suffering and weakness and hardship, not the God coming with mighty power. But we get the God who understands when we're in those places. And we get the God who meets us in those places as we make space for him. And we get the God who makes new things, resurrection, there. In the things that seem like They've all failed. And so it's so easy to miss them. It's so easy to become blinded by what has been lost, to become blinded by the negative news cycle, to become blinded by catastrophic thinking, to become blinded by the cynicism of these days, to become blinded by our expectations of how God should work. We are pulled to doubt. We are hardened by cynicism. And we become jaded. So what do we do? About a week and a half ago, I read a prayer from Pete Grieg that just so got me. Lord, today I repent of my jadedness and cynicism. Making the choice to believe my beliefs more than my doubts. And to doubt my doubts more than my beliefs. Amen. You see, let's not forget that no matter how dark it may get, God is working in these days. Guiding us to let go of what was so we can recognize Jesus now. Because resurrection is at work.
So how might it be that God is most at work when everything seems to be falling apart? Name that. What am I clinging to that once was that prevents me from recognizing who Jesus is right now? What am I holding on to? Let it go. What do I need to let go of? What needs to die so I can be raised to new life? What in my life, what in my attitude, what in my world, what in my dreams needs to die? No one wants that conversation. But that's the conversation God calls us to. What do I need to let die so that resurrection life, his new thing, can come, that I can find life? You see, that's how God works. The God who works when it seemed there was no way Jesus could come back from death. This is how he worked in the downcast souls of two travelers. And this is how he works in a world that does violence to our souls. This is resurrection. I wish I could say I have this all locked down. Some days I think I do. And then something else happens. And I'm struggling and I'm faltering and I'm trying to figure out where's God in this. And sometimes... Like these two, I have to walk down that road for a bit until Jesus comes alongside me. And says, what things, Jeff, are you letting keep you from me? What things are you being downcast about? What things? And I find that it's when I take the time to welcome him. When I take the time to open up the scriptures. When I take the time to worship him, when I take the time to give thanks, that's when I begin to get some clarity. Not always answers, but clarity. So today, may we stop dead in our tracks and may we make room for Jesus through our faith. May we give him thanks, hearts up, And then may he open our eyes to recognize him today and there find hope. I believe he wants to open our eyes. Not for the kingdom we want, but for the kingdom of God that truly is. With Jesus in the center. That prayer from Pete Grieg is worth repeating. Do we have that? There we go. Let's pray this out loud together. Now, you don't have to, but if you would like to, pray this prayer for your soul. I invite you to join me as I pray for my own. Let's pray together. Lord, today I repent of my jadedness and cynicism making the choice to believe my beliefs more than my doubts and to doubt my doubts more than my beliefs. Amen. Our worship team is going to come, and as they come, we are going to sing about the same God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same God that met these two travelers on the road, the same God that is still with us and wants to meet you 
not where you hope to be, maybe not even where you've come from, but in your now, in whatever now is for you. He wants to meet you and me. Let's stand together and let's sing.